Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. So have you ever been overwhelmed by the reliability, the reliability of the sun's rising? Or have you ever been filled with the awareness of the good that it accomplishes every day? More often than not, I take it for granted. I wake up, I grab my coffee, I check my to-do list, and I kind of face whatever the day holds. But I forget about the world at work around me. This world that actually began a new day while I was still sleeping, sawing logs in the middle of the night. Now, for those of you who grew up maybe in the Binbrook area or at least agricultural farming land, then you might have a better appreciation for what the good it can do, what, what good it can accomplish. But for me, it's not until I'm away on vacation that I finally put my feet up, get up early enough, and see the sunrise that I'm actually reminded of its reliability and its goodness. But when I do slow down enough to take it in and become aware of it, I'm always filled with the sense of awe and wonder. And I can kind of almost feel the tightness in my shoulders just relaxing, being like, ah, it's a new day. I can let go of all that I'm carrying, and I can just simply relax. And like I said, the new day begins while most of us are sleeping. And by the time we wake up, we're entering into this day that's actually already begun. And it was a book called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan that really helped remind me of that, that God's already at work starting this new thing, this new day, long before I even begin participating with him in it. And I want us to consider this and keep it in mind as we continue to dig into our series, Summer in the Psalms. Because as we mentioned a couple weeks ago when we kicked off the series, the Psalms are kind of this rawness and this authenticity of just pouring our heart out before God. And it doesn't have to be right and accurate. It's just authentic and real. So I want us to consider the Psalms through the vantage point and the lens of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation or reorientation. We talked about that in the first message, but a bit of a recap is orientation is kind of where we all begin. It's kind of this... Um, this proclamation and declaration of these foundational elements and truths and things are good, life is good, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But then there's also these seasons of disorientation we go into, where suddenly life gets flipped upside down and we're just trying to make sense of which end is up. And then there's reorientation, which is coming out of these disoriented seasons and understanding and appreciating the world in a whole new way, having lived through those hardships, but also coming back to some of these orienting truths. So tonight, as I said, we're looking at Psalms of Orientation. And I was surprised actually how difficult this was for me to write. And I think it's because it is where we all start. It's these foundational elements that it just, it is what it is. And we just kind of cry out to God and we, we praise him for who he is and all that's around us, but it's stuff that we take for granted. And I thought, I'm like, man, like, what do I even say that's going to be new or captivating or that will just be a different take on it rather than just putting you guys to sleep with regurgitating information that you already know? 
So hopefully I've come up with something or that God's speaking through me in some miraculous ways. But the Psalms of Orientation reflect this confident, serene perspective on life. And it's rooted in an ordered outlook on the world. There's this created order and there's this confident, like, yes, this is the way things are. And because of that, we can kind of just settle into that and be peaceable with it. So these psalms include hymns of praise, many hymns of praise, but they also include some of the minor categories. So songs of creation, songs of Torah, wisdom psalms, historical, royal, messianic, kingship of Yahweh psalms, and simply occasions of well-being. So psalms of orientation are the psalms when things are going well. Life is good. You haven't hit too many bumps in the road, and you're tracking. Another way to describe these psalms would be psalms of safe orientation, because there's safety, there's kind of protection in this place that you're, you're sitting in, and you know that, okay, God has a plan, God has this all worked out. Things are going good for me, so I must be living life according to his plan. And whenever these psalms are used, they continue to assure us of this canopy of certainty. Despite all of the incongruities of life, they remind us of God's reliability, his trustworthiness. They call us to express confidence in faith issues so that we don't have to live in anxiety. And that is something that's great about these psalms. But this is what added difficulty writing this message because these are the psalms that I actually push back against. Probably because I grew up in an environment that these psalms were the ones that you focus on. So even if you're going through a hard time, you focus on the triumphant songs. I'm, I'm sure I've shared this example before, but when I moved back from British Columbia for the first time, my grandma had passed away a month after, and it, was, it rocked me. I was really close to her. I loved her. And my family around me had dealt with the suffering, and we're at this point of relief, just like, it's good for her, it's good for us. And then they could go right into kind of this triumphant, she's with God, she's all these true things. But it hurt me because I'm like, wait a second, aren't you allowing any space here to actually grieve and go through these, these feelings and the, these emotions? So this is why I push back against some of these psalms, because like many of us, as we get older, we go through the difficult seasons. We go through these disorienting experiences, and they accumulate. They build on top of one another. And when we're going through the hard time, we don't necessarily want to be hanging out with the people who are in the psalms of orientation place, because it sucks. Like, just look at Job in the Old Testament, and he's hanging out with his friends, and he's suffering, and they're all giving, them, giving him their reasons as to why he's suffering. And while some of what they might be saying is true and accurate and good, it just sucks. In our day, you'll hear things like, just trust God, don't worry, he's got this. It's all part of God's plan. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. Or the one that I can't stand which God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Now, there might be some truth in some of these things, but there's also some crap in some of these things. And all of it's being used out of context and in these ways 
that add to the hurt and the frustration. But next week's disorientation, so I need to bring it back to orientation. So I want us to look at a psalm of orientation tonight, and I want us to understand its context. And I want us to see what's happening and how it can encourage us in our relationship with Jesus today. So the psalm that I've settled on is Psalm 19. There's several of them throughout the book of Psalms. There's actually psalms even outside the book of Psalms and other books of the Old Testament. But Psalm 19 is where we're going to settle tonight. So I have a the first six verses up on the screen, then I'll have the other seven or eight after this slide. So it's a lot of reading, but bear with me. So verse one, heaven is declaring God's glory. The sky is proclaiming his handiwork. One day gushes the news to the next, and one night informs another what needs to be known. Of course, there's no speech, no words. Their voices can't be heard, but their sound extends throughout the world. Their words reach the ends of the earth. God has made a tent in heaven for the sun. The sun is like a groom coming out of his honeymoon suite, like a warrior it thrills at running its course. It rises in one end of the sky. Its circuit is complete at the other. Nothing escapes its heat. The Lord's instruction is perfect, reviving one's very being. The Lord's laws are faithful, making naive people wise. The Lord's regulations are right, gladdening the heart. The Lord's commands are pure, giving light to the eyes. Honoring the Lord is correct, lasting forever. The Lord's judgments are true. All of these are righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than tons of pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, even dripping off the honeycomb. No doubt about it, your servant is enlightened by them. There is great reward in keeping them, but can anyone know? what they've accidentally done wrong? Clear me of any unknown sin and save your servant from willful sins. Don't let them rule me. Then I'll be completely blameless. I'll be innocent of great wrongdoing. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This psalm is an awe-filled description of the cosmic self-revelation of God through his creative acts, particularly the heavens, and his gracious instruction in Torah. So the psalm has two sections, verses 1 to 6, which was on the first screen, which focuses on creation and the splendor of the sun, and then verses 7 to 14, which focuses on the law's role in giving boundaries to human will and desire. But ultimately, Psalm 19 is a song written in thanks and celebration for Torah, which I'm going to get into in a minute. But I first want to touch on creation. Because first of all, creation here is not a theory about how the world came to be. That's not how the Bible speaks about creation. Rather, it's an affirmation of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. So songs of creation affirm that the world is a well-ordered, reliable, and life-giving system because not only has God created it and ordained it that way, he also continues to be involved in it. So these verses on creation point us to the creator who in creating has made something awesome, unique, ordered, and life-giving. But then taking it one step further, 
it not only points us to the, this protective reality of God, our creator and his creation, but psalms of orientation, I believe, evoke it, present it, and keep it in place. And what I mean by that is one scholar suggests that these psalms, as they're used in public worship, that there's this creative power at work. And as we, as we speak them, as we share them with one another, as we sing them, he says that this kind of worship is in itself world-making. So just as God created the world by word, by speaking, he's still at work creating the world through speaking. Because these psalms become a means whereby the creator, in fact, is still creating the world. The creative world is spoken in these psalms in the liturgical process. And it's in the world of worship that Israel re-experiences and redescribes the safe world over which God presides. Because again, these psalms were written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the fall of the temple. Then they lived through this period of disorientation. They came out and there's this reorientation, but then eventually it turns into orientation once again. But what I find so interesting in this passage is that it's actually a song of Torah. And it focuses on the thanks and celebration of Torah. And Torah, another way of saying it, is law. And the fact that it comes right on the heels of this image of the sun is far from incidental. The Torah is similar to the sun in that just as the sun it's all about direction, light, and purpose. The Torah is all about direction, light, and purpose. The Torah gives life and energy and is set out in accordance with the divine plan. So we encounter the Torah in the same way in which we encounter God and his creation, as always, just already there. So the task, according to this psalmist, is to begin to take notice and live accordingly. So I have to ask, because I'm sure you're wondering, what is Torah? Torah is the name for the first five books of the Bible. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That in and of itself is Torah. But Torah is also more than just the first five books. It's, it's what it contains. So Torah means way or teaching or law or instruction. And just like I mentioned the first week, how everything in the Jewish world centered around the temple, that was their point of reference, that's because the temple centered around Torah. They came together to read Torah and to interpret Torah together. On the Sabbath, you'd go to the synagogue, and the worship leader would actually take out the Torah scroll of the ark and parade it around the congregation and give you an opportunity to dance before the, the scroll of Torah. Now, I'm not going to do that tonight, but uh, maybe, maybe another night if we need to get up and move. But what it was, is they believed the Torah was a copy of what God had said to Moses after they'd been freed from slavery in Egypt. So these were God's words to the Jewish people. So Torah can mean teachings or instruction or simply just way, way. So they believed that the Torah was the way, the truth, and the life. They believed the best way to live was to live how the Torah said to live. 
And so the central passion of the Jewish people was teaching, living, and obeying Torah. And you see this throughout verses 7 to 11. They're good, perfect, faithful, right, pure. They make you wise and so on. But it's also important to note that the Torah was not an entrance exam to determine who's in and who's out. Rather, Torah was a way of life taken by those already committed to God. So it's even hard for my mind to fully grasp this because when I think of law, it's thinking of things you don't do or you do do. And, but Torah served as a response of faith, not a sign of faith. Torah was already amongst God's people and Torah was central to life. And because Torah was so central to life that if you lost it, you essentially lost everything, they then began thinking, how do we get our kids to learn Torah? So this is fascinating because they started sending their kids off to school in the synagogue at about the age of six. And they were taught by the local rabbi, and they would go there until about the age of 10. And by that time, they would generally know the entire thing by heart. So Genesis... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Like, man, it's hard enough sometimes for us to just read through these books of the Bible, let alone have it memorized. But this helps make the New Testament make sense when you see Jesus quoting a verse, and he says, it might take like a part of a verse or a phrase, and everyone in the crowd kind of seems to know, oh, yeah. That's because they were learning these things at such a young age, and they had it memorized. They were taking in the words, and they were becoming a part of them. So another interesting thing to note is that sometimes a rabbi would take honey, and he'd place it on the student's finger, and then he'd have the students taste the honey. And the reason he did this is the rabbi wanted the students to associate the words of God with the most delicious, exquisite things they could possibly imagine. So it's interesting that in verse 10 then, it talks about the Torah, God's law is desirable, sweeter than honey, even honey coming straight from the honeycomb. He's actually reminding them. This isn't just an off-the-cuff remark. This is recalling their experiences from childhood when they were memorizing Torah. Now, at the age of 10 becomes the pivotal moment of whether you're kind of rising to the top or you're falling behind. And if you're falling behind, then you pick up your family's trade, whether making sandals or woodworking, and you continue that on and you pass it on to the next generation. But if you began rising to the top, if you were the best of the best with the natural abilities, you'd continue on to this next level of education and you would memorize in the next three to four years the rest of the Old Testament, the 39 books from Genesis through Malachi, memorized. There's actually one story of a guy that I know who went to a Jewish college down in New York in the mid-80s, and he didn't come from a Jewish background, and when he got there, he was the only student who didn't have the Old Testament memorized and just felt so in over his head. But here's the part that makes my ears perk up and where I want to lean in and I want to know more is that the students in the second step of this education, they would also study the art of questions. 
and the oral tradition surrounding the text. For thousands of years, these brilliant minds have been discussing the words of God, wrestling with what they meant and what it meant to live them out. So this developed this massive oral tradition being passed down. And you had a verse, but then you had all of these things that had been said about the verse from all of the different people who had discussed it and wrestled with it and commentated on it. A mountain of oral tradition. So as a student, you'd be learning the text, but you'd also be learning who had said what in the name of whom about it. Now, when the rabbi would ask a student the question, he would seldom give an answer. And have you ever noticed how rarely Jesus ever gives an answer? He, he responds with another question. Because you see, rabbis had no interest in having the student just spit back information. The way we do things in school is we, we quiz kids on, okay, do you know the alphabet? Spit it back to me. Do you know this? Spit it back to me. I literally, in one of my Bible college courses, he said, if you could memorize this page front and back, you'll get a perfect score because this is your exam. And so I was able to memorize it. I couldn't tell you anything about it now, but I was able to regurgitate it for the exam. But in this world, they wanted to know if the student understood it, if he had wrestled with it. So this notion is difficult for our minds to get. But the better the student is, it's not just can they produce the right information at the right time. In the world of rabbinic education, the focus was on questions which demonstrated that the student not only understood the information, but could actually then turn it back around and ask you a question. They could take it a step further. So all of this comes down to the fact that in the Jewish world, the Torah started the discussion. And I think this is key for kind of unlocking these, these psalms of orientation, is that the Torah started the discussion. Because in our world, in our day and age, we often use the Bible to end the discussion. As my dad would always say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and it's good enough for me. And while there's a lot of truth to that, it's missing this point of starting the discussion. But at this time, the Torah, with it being the start of the discussion, you would read it together, and you would interpret it. You engage with it. And it was as if you were turning a gem. It's not just two sides of the same coin. It's more like this, this gem. And actually, I have a book uh, written by a rabbi that he takes a passage from Genesis, which is part of the Torah, and he gives about 32 different interpretations of what this one passage means. And it's just mind-blowing. But the beauty of it is that it's not just this mere intellectual exercise. It's about life. It's about how do you live? What do you do? How do you act? How do you treat people? How do you conduct yourself? It's not just about the right answers. It's actually about transformation. Therefore, psalms of orientation, psalms that celebrate creation and the created order and the wonder and the majesty of it all, they actually are inviting us into the discussion. They're the starting point. They're the affirmations about who God is. But then they invite us to participate and live it out with God. 
So as Psalm 19 points out, the appropriate response to Torah is delight. Just like being struck by the reliability of the rising sun, we can delight in the reliability of a faithful, good, and trustworthy God. It's about posture. Verse 14, the psalm ends with, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. It's this response. It's about acknowledging our creator, affirming his goodness and faithfulness, and becoming aware of not only his presence, but who we are in light of who he is. But I do have a caution is that Torah starts the discussion, but safe orientation wants to control it. Because of the declarative nature of the Psalms of orientation, we have to be careful and alert to the slippery ways that this, can, this perspective can bask in its own well-offness and serve as a form of social control. So we can actually use some of these declarative things to kind of start judging, okay, who's in, who's out, who's doing the right things. Statements that I'm sure we can all relate to is hearing, well, if you had have only done this, then that wouldn't have happened. Or the one that always strikes a nerve with me is the social media world when uh, people will announce their pregnancy and declare that they're having a baby because they prayed. Those are difficult things to wrestle with. Now, there might be some truth in some statements, but this is where we have to be careful to not use these things as a form of social control. And I think sometimes we, it's more of a challenge in North American Christianity because we miss the themes contained in the Psalms or even in the, the Bible itself because we've become reliant upon ourselves. We have so much. We truly have been blessed with so much. But we can end up then taking that for granted and turning it into using these Psalms for power and control over others. So like the Torah, the Psalms of orientation, they invite us to enter the discussion. But if this is how we're to interpret these Psalms and understand them, I want to make one final shift from interpretation into incarnation. Because this is kind of the shift of Scripture, the shift of the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew, a large crowd gathers around Jesus and he tells them that he hasn't come to abolish the law. He hasn't come to abolish Torah, but to fulfill it. And abolishing and fulfilling were common ways of speaking about the Torah in Jesus' days. So when people were discussing the Bible and trying to figure out what it looks like to live it out, if someone suggested a terrible or misguided interpretation, they would be told, you have abolished the Torah. Or as we might say, that's missing the point. You've lost the plot that's not it. But if you got it, if there was some agreement that, yes, that's what it means, that's what it looks like to live it out, then you'd say, you've fulfilled the Torah. Because that was the goal, to take the words and bring them to life, in your life. That's the movement in the Bible, from word to flesh. And that's what we mean by the word incarnation. So when Jesus comes along and says that he's come to fulfill the Torah, he's announcing that he's come to make it speak, 
to show what it looks like in an actual space and time, to put a body on it, to give it legs. So according to Matthew, Jesus then launches into a series of teachings that have a pattern to them, a pattern in which he says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I tell you, dot, 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 which was Jesus' way of saying, you've heard people interpret Torah this way, but I'm here to tell you this is how to interpret it. And he offers new interpretations with himself. Jesus fulfills the Torah. Jesus embodies it. He doesn't ever say that it's irrelevant, that he's on the scene now. He says that it's taken on flesh and blood in him. So over and over again, Jesus is insisting that he's doing something more significant and elemental than simply just being a good teacher or rabbi. He keeps claiming that something new is happening in the world, and it's happening through him. Something involving heaven and earth coming together, the divine and the human in the same place. Or as one of the first followers of Jesus writes in his gospel, Gospel of John, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Incarnation is so compelling and so mysterious and is such a powerful idea. And Jesus said he came to put flesh and blood on the Torah. He makes new interpretations. And then what's more is he invites us into the discussion. So tonight and this week ahead, I want us to lean into these Psalms of orientation with a deep appreciation and thankfulness for who God is and who we are in light of him. Let us become aware of his goodness and faithfulness all around us. Let us delight in them. And may the posture of our hearts mirror that of the psalmist who declares, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer.